We are in the second week of Advent. Uh, A quick reminder, Advent is the season when we remember the birth of Jesus and we hope for his return. It's a season of living in the middle space between these realities. Uh, This Advent, we are exploring the parable of the prodigal son, also known as the parable of the two sons which is the title I prefer. Uh, This parable, it makes sense for Advent because in it, we discover more fully who Jesus is and the radical nature of God's heart. And in it, we also learn how to prepare our own hearts to celebrate Jesus' coming and expected return. Uh, But before we move forward, let's do a quick recap of where we are. Uh, Tax collectors and sinners are coming to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the elite religious class of that day, were bothered by this. By their understanding, it was the presence of people like tax collectors and sinners, this ragtag collective of hooligans uh, that were inhibiting the kingdom of God from coming. And we're, we're told at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 that they were grumbling to one another, saying, this man receives and eats with sinners. In other words, they're saying this Jesus, he clearly doesn't understand who is in and who is out in God's kingdom and what it takes to prepare the way for the kingdom to come. In response to this, Jesus tells a parable. Because Jesus wants to help the Pharisees and scribes understand what God is really up to in the world and how they're missing it because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's trying to show them how narrowly they've defined God's heart for the world. The parable he tells is about two sons. The younger son asked his father to divide up the inheritance. And in that culture, it was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. And shockingly, the father does it. The elder son stays at home with his father, but the younger son sells his portion. He takes what is his, and he goes on a journey to a foreign country. And there, over time, he spends and loses everything he has. He blows it all. Then a severe famine hits, and that is the rock bottom underneath the rock bottom. He finds himself hungry and suffering and alone, and he is so desperate that he took work feeding pigs. This is another little detail that would have shocked the original hearers. Uh, No kosher, Torah-observant Jew would eat a pig, let alone work with pigs, So we ended last week on verse 16, which says, He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He wanted life on his own, life without his father, life on his own terms. But this is where his wandering heart has led him, hungry and longing. And last week, uh, as Mike looked at this part of the parable, he challenged us to recognize this in our own hearts, how our own hearts wander. And how we want all the things God has to offer us, but not God himself. We want the gifts, but we don't want the giver. And in a million little ways and insignificant ways, we actually live as if we wish God were dead. As we continue in the parable this week, we'll pick it back up in verses 17 through 19. I want to look at three things that happened in the younger son's life. Realization, rehearsal, and surrender. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15, verse 17. It starts with a very simple and yet important phrase. But when he came to himself. But when he came to himself. The younger son has a realization. He's been on a journey, but only now does it seem that he's really arrived. He connects with his longing, his hunger, and the desperate state that his wandering heart has led him to. In other words, his pain and longing causes him to come to his senses. 
C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain, that pain insists upon being attended to. God shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It should be of no surprise to us that the younger son's longing and the pain of his circumstances led him to come to his senses. Lewis is absolutely right. God shouts in our pains and longings. They get our attention. Uh, Maybe you've put everything into a relationship. You gave the person your whole life, your emotions, your time, your mental space. You gave them your body. You thought, if I give them myself, if I give them all myself, then I'll be loved. But it didn't work out. They're, They're gone after all you did and gave, and your heart is in pieces on the floor. The pain is starting to get your attention now. Or maybe the relationship is working out, and yet the relationship doesn't fix the things you thought it would fix. You still feel lonely. You still feel incomplete. You see, the longing for more, it's starting to get your attention. Maybe you put everything into the party scene. You went to the right clubs, the right events. You gave it all your energy and money. You sleep around thinking you'll find love, and it just leaves you feeling empty, used, and hungover. And the pain is starting to get your attention. Or maybe the parties are fine. They're still fun. The one-night stand's still exciting. But they leave you asking, is this all there is? Having fun, entertaining myself, meaningless sex, is that it? The longing for more starts to get your attention. Uh, One more example. Maybe you put everything into your career, every ounce of self-determination and self-control. You've made huge sacrifices. You thought if you could earn enough money, uh, you would have security. If you fight for the right cause, you'd have a sense of purpose. But then the job goes, or the funding runs out, and the pain starts to get your attention. Or maybe your job, it's thriving. You're getting the promotions and the raises and the attention. And yet you still don't feel accomplished or content. The new position doesn't make you feel more valuable. The increased salary doesn't give you more freedom. The longing for more is getting your attention. When we follow our wandering hearts down whatever path they may lead us, the end destination is always the same. I thought this thing, whatever it is, was going to be it. But it's not. We realize for all the things we've done, all the things we've seen, all that we've accomplished, they haven't led to what we thought they would bring. We thought that on these journeys, we would find some sense of self-actualization, that we would find ourselves, or that we would be fulfilled. But all we do is find out that we need more. We have a longing that can't be met by following our hearts, because of our, our hearts lead us to all sorts of things, but they're ultimately empty wells, broken cisterns that run dry. You might have followed your heart to the literal pig pen. You're living this parable. You identify with the younger son. You know the emptiness of having lost everything. Or maybe right now you know the emptiness of having found everything, but still feeling like you have nothing. But when you connect with this pain, this longing, it rouses you. It's a megaphone in the hands of the living God. The younger son followed his wandering heart, and now he is roused by his longing and pain, being on the brink of starvation, utterly bankrupt, wakes him up. Look at verse 17 again. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He starts asking, What am I doing? Why am I settling for this? For pig pods. 
If I was even a hired servant in my father's estate, if I was kept out of arm's length from him on the outskirts, I would have more than this. In other words, life on the edge of the father's presence would be better than life without the father's presence at all. But the big question is, after all that has been said and done, what does it actually look like to return to the father? Think about what returning home would mean for the younger son. He would have to face his father, who he wished dead. His father, who answered his request despite the insult and the hurt it caused. He would have to face his brother, who he abandoned. His brother, who he left with his father. He would have to face the village, who watched all these shameful actions unfold. The shame he inflicted upon his family. It would have been very public. The the community that watched the family try to pick up the pieces and go on with one big empty void. You know, in in returning, the younger son has to encounter all that he's done and bear the shame and the humiliation of where it's led, utter failure. There's a bitter price that comes with going home. But he realizes that owning all that he's done is better than his current circumstances. He realizes also that he can't go home unprepared. There's distance that has to be bridged. Uh, Relationships aren't simply repaired by one person having an epiphany. Uh, You know, an apology over text or email or phone or uh, by pigeon, uh, you know, like that's not going to cut it either. Words matter, especially their sincerity. Uh, But presence, presence matters too. Uh, When I was 19, I got into a serious fight with my best friend growing up. We had been practically inseparable uh, from the eighth grade. He was at my house pretty much every day, and if he he wasn't at my house, I was at his house. And uh, he ate so much of my parents' food that I'm convinced to this day, my dad still doesn't know his name. He just calls him the scrounger. Uh, But this fight, it caused us to not talk or see one another for four years. I won't recap the specifics of the fight, but let's just say uh, it was so dramatic that it puts most Mexican soap operas to shame. Uh, But let's be honest, it was about a girl. What else could it be? But uh, the scrounger, you know, the scrounger and I, we had this fight. And uh, we didn't talk. We avoided one another. It created a lot of tension in our our friends. Uh, And then one day he had to move away to finish school. And that was it. There's distance between us relationally, and now there's distance geographically. And... A few years later, he's in town, and I heard this, and we actually bumped into each other. Uh, And we just exchanged pleasantries. Uh, That was it, and he left. But I came to my senses. I missed him. And I thought about the cost of being outside of his presence and how simple it would be for me to own my part of the fight. Not to make him own his, but to own mine. And so I called him, and I said, hey, scrounger, can we go get a, a coffee? And so we did, and we sat down, and we we got a coffee, and we just, you know, small talk, and slowly the the conversation uh, died down, and we just sat there in silence. And I had thought long and hard about what I wanted to say. And I was nervous, and so I took a breath, and I said, I I looked him in the eyes, and I said, we all good? And he said, we're all good. (laughs) That was it, you know, male bonding at its best. Uh, Okay, there's more to it, but... Um, to reconcile, uh, the distance between us had to be overcome by two things. By presence, entering into one another's presence, but also by sincere words. There was no manipulation or pretense. There had to be dialogue. Uh, 
some of the distance the younger son has to address is just straight up geography. You know, his journey of self-discovery uh, following his wandering heart has led him a far way from home. He's in a different country, and now he has to embark on retracing his steps. He realizes he has to go and speak within his father's presence. But words matter, too, if the distance is going to be made up relationally. He can't just think, well, I should confess and say, well, that was a nice thought. All is well. That would accomplish nothing. True confession and repentance isn't a monologue. It's a dialogue. And the young, younger son, he realizes this. He has to go and he has to speak and he has to invite the father to respond however he will respond. And so he rehearses what he's going to say and we get to listen in on his inner workings. We get to listen in on this monologue that he rehearses. Look at uh, verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. As the younger son rehearses what he's going to say to his father, he recognizes that what he has done, yes, is before his father, but is ultimately an offense to heaven, to God. He says, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven. This might seem a little odd. You know, he's betrayed his father. What does this have to do with heaven? Everything. You know, remember the parable. This parable is fundamentally about how we relate to God. And the, the, the son, he's realizing that our entire lives unfold on the stage of God's creation. So that any time that our brokenness bubbles up out of our hearts and hurts others, you know, the fight or the insult or the gossip or the flirting, the affair, the jealousy or the domineering, whatever form of relational disorder that takes place. It's ultimately because of our fractured relationship with God. These, ha these things happen because we withdraw from God and, and draw into ourselves. And without, heart, uh, without God, uh, the human heart just gives birth to emptiness and death and brokenness. Our trees corrupt at the root. In other words, any sin horizontally, any sin that happens within this room is ultimately because of disorder vertically, disorder with our relationship with God. So true confession will acknowledge what has been done, but that it's ultimately taken place on God's stage, and that it's ultimately been committed against God. That doesn't mean we get a gloss over the hurt that we cause people. It actually is a deepening of the hurt, because we have not only grieved them, but we have grieved God. And framing the younger son's confession this way, Jesus is reminding his hearers what this parable is all about. It's about how we relate to God and how we enter into his kingdom. It's about restoring that vertical relationship. And Jesus, he's addressing who is in and who is out. The Pharisees and the scribes, they had their own sense about what it meant to relate to God and belong to his kingdom. You know, keep the rules, obey, follow Torah, and separate from anyone that doesn't fit the mold. But Jesus, in this parable, is reminding that the first steps to true reconciliation with God is confession and the recognition that we have everything we have done is ultimately against heaven. He's reminding us that when we follow our wandering hearts, we ultimately go wayward because we follow them away from heaven. So then, if tax collectors and sinners, if this seemingly dysfunctional group of people 
who've been designated as outside the kingdom, if they start responding, if they begin to confess and repent, they're actually taking steps into the kingdom. And subtly, Jesus is telling them that by being in his presence, they're actually entering into God's presence. Their relationship with God is actually being mended. Because who does God dwell with? That's the issue. Who does God dwell with? And over and over and over again, the scriptures remind us, yes, that God is high and lifted up. He is holy and separate from us. And yet he also dwells with the humble and the contrite and the lowly of spirit, those with true, sincere words of confession on their lips, who recognize that they've offended against him, but draw near to him anyways. The Pharisees and the scribes, they see this happening, and it bothers them. They grumble that Jesus would welcome these sort of people. But honestly, I don't think we take the same sort of offense. Our society, we love, we love us some good stories of redemption. Do you guys remember the viral sensation, uh, the man with the golden voice? Right? Like he, this, this guy was like discovered on a street corner, and a, a guy filmed him. He just had this radio voice, like, hello. You know, like, that's my best attempt. But, um, and it went viral, and he got on all these news shows, and he got to go on, like, Dr. Phil and stuff, and, and he got redeemed and restored. And I, I was following up on him, you know, this week, because I know him, obviously. No, I was just Googling. But um, he's... He said it's been rough. You know, it's been up and down. But by and large, he's on this trajectory of redemption. And we eat it up. The videos have like millions of views. We love stories of redemption in our culture. What we take issue with is actually the kingdom's perspective of self-realization. Mike touched on this beautifully last week. Uh, In our society, we think that going on a journey is a good thing. Because you don't want to stop believing. Actually, you do. You know, you leave home and you you abandon any beliefs that you inherited and you go out into the world and find yourself. You figure out if you really believe it for yourself. You figure out who you are, what you want to do. And and if you've arrived, if you've actually come to a place of self-realization, self-actualization, you'll be more convinced of your own goodness, your own strengths, the validity of your own perspective and your own dreams. But here, the younger son shows us that true realization of the self leads to confession. It leads us to saying, I am not worthy. The parable pushes us to recognize that we are more in touch with who we are and how the world actually operates when we come to see ourselves as unworthy. Unworthy of anything because by following our hearts, we have sinned against God in heaven. Because our hearts outside of the grip and grace of God lead us wayward. The prophet Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Isaiah chimes in and he says, The human heart calls what is good evil and what is evil good. Jesus is reminding the Pharisees and the scribes that there are no worthy people in God's kingdom. That the way in is through confessing and admitting to our own unworthiness. Through his wayward journey then, the the younger son comes to this fundamental self-realization, which he plans to say to his father, I'm unworthy to be called your son. I'm unworthy to be called your son. You know, this is his surrender. 
He has a surrendered heart. Uh, Whatever he was trying to prove or find by wandering away from his father, he admits it's bankrupt, and he's willing to take ownership of it and accept the consequences. He is surrendering himself to whatever may come when he enters into his father's presence. He's willing to recognize the shame he cast upon his family and own it. And as he plans this rehearsal, he caps it off with this, treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me as one of your hired servants. One of my seminary professors, he used to say to me, uh, I'll be happy to be a janitor in God's kingdom. You know, I'll be happy to be a gardener in the mansion of the poor on earth in God's kingdom. I think he's touching on uh, what's going on here in the prodigal's heart. If the father's willing to show him mercy, he doesn't see himself as deserving anything more than being a hired servant. He doesn't presume that he will regain his position as a son. He can make no demands. He can't demand mercy and forgiveness. Just in the same way that someone can't take this parable if they've offended against someone and demand that they be forgiven. He can only make a sincere confession and a humble request If you'll just take me back, I'll accept at the very least. And it notes just such a change in his heart. From demanding from his father, give me it all. Give me all that is due to me. He now says, give me the very least, because nothing is due to me. But rehearsal is always different than going live. It's always different than the play enacted or the show being performed. There's always an element of the unknown. You know, will all the rehearsing pay off? Will everything come together? Uh, back in my band days, we recorded our first EP when, when we were 16, I think. Um, and we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed in my parents' basement and convinced, you know, we're going to be rock stars. And finally get in the, st- in the studio, you know, the drummer lays down some sick beats and get the guitar tone just right. And then I lay down the vocals. And then all of us finally get to sit together on a couch and hear the recordings for the first time. You know, finally get to listen to our music for ourselves, because when you're playing it, you don't really know. And I remember thinking, that's what we sound like? That is terrible. No one's going to want to listen to this. Uh, And so I discovered, you know, like, we really need to rehearse some more. I really need to learn how to sing on tune. And then on the eighth day, God invented auto-tune. And ever since, I've sounded like T-Pain. But, you know, rehearsing doesn't guarantee what, what the live performance will go like. While the younger son is rehearsing, questions linger. How will the monologue go when it becomes a dialogue? How will the father react? What will he say? Will he accept him? Will he forgive him? Or will he shame him and send him away? And as we will see next week, when it comes to God's heart, rehearsing to enter his presence is never as good as entering in and being in his presence and receiving what he has to offer. In rehearsing, the younger son could not fathom how the father would respond. The father's love will go on to defy any and all expectations. And so much more is in store for him. But that has to wait until next week. So how does the younger son's surrendered heart help us prepare our hearts in the middle space of Advent? Advent is a season where we're invited to let God take the pain that we feel currently and the longings that we feel currently and to speak to us through them. 
because we have the propensity to get off track. We follow our own hearts and desires and wants and fancies, and we end up being where we wanted to be or we end up being where we didn't want to be, uh, but we, we find ourselves struggling. And whether it's things have fallen apart and we're in pain or whether things are going well and we're still longing, we realize that these things speak to us about our desire for more, uh, but rather than trying to ignore the pain or, or the longing or try to numb it out with whatever thing you use to distract yourself. Instead, in Advent, we're invited to connect with the pain and the longing, to let God rouse us and wake us up and speak to us however he may speak to us in that pain and longing. And in Advent, then, we are reminded that we are in the middle of a much greater story that's unfolding. Christ has come and Christ will return and how we live in the middle of the story matters. Our pain from disappointment or our longing for more, these things remind us that we desperately need Jesus to return. And between now and then, we desperately need him to show up in our lives because our pains and our longings can only be mended and fully uh, fulfilled by him, the author of our hearts. Advent, then, is also a time to reconnect with our unworthiness. The Pharisees and the scribes, they know that the tax collectors and the sinners are unworthy. The problem is that they've lost sight of their own unworthiness. And so we're invited to confess that we're unworthy, that we didn't deserve the birth of Christ. We didn't deserve his magnificent and yet humble entry into the world. We didn't deserve his forgiveness, and we don't deserve a place in his kingdom when he returns. And we don't deserve him if we honestly take an assessment of how we live our lives day to day in between his appearance. We live as if he's an idea, a nice Christmas story, not much more. And yet the younger son reminds us that we all need to turn and confess and surrender our hearts to the Father. And for some of you here, that might mean uh, finally accepting that Jesus really is who he said he is. You know, maybe you've been on a journey of trying to figure that question out, and you keep having these conversations and connections about Jesus, and it seems like God is pursuing you, but you just kind of brush it off, and, and you keep wandering, and you keep searching on your own terms. For you, maybe it's time to surrender that Jesus really is pursuing you, that although you don't have all the answers, it's time to surrender and trust him, and give yourself to him, and to enter into his presence, recognizing you're not worthy, but that he's offering it to you. For many of us, surrender means letting go and refocusing. We have to walk away from the things that we use to numb ourselves and distract ourselves from our pain and our longing. We have to give ourselves back to Jesus and as we journey home towards him, we need to do so with great expectation that he can really meet our longings, our desire for more, that he really can meet us in the midst of the pain. So we have to ask ourselves, like, what am I using to numb myself from my pain and my longing? What do I go to to distract myself from having to really hear God speak through those things? It's not easy. But when we really hear God speaking in the most real place, the pain and the longing, it's always to lead us back home. It's always to lead us back to himself. 
And as we'll see next week, when we take action and we return home, the play will be better than the rehearsal.